So I'm super excited to let all of our listeners know that we have our first sponsor. And this is a big deal for me. It's a big deal in many ways. But the most important thing is that I wouldn't choose a sponsor that I didn't believe in. And our sponsor is Denny Tato. She is the president of Corporate Consciousness, and she uses a tool called the Enneagram. And if you don't know what the Enneagram is, it's an amazing assessment, and it really helps in building emotional intelligence. I've used it. My husband has used it. I've recommended it to teams and to clients. But it's not just the tool. It's really more than that. It's Denny. Denny has this innate ability to coach teams and individuals. I know this because I coach others too. So take it from me. She's pretty amazing. So if you want to develop your greatest asset, your employees, you're ready to take it to the next level, check out corpconsciousness.com. In December of 2016, I was set out to get high on December 7th. I was like, I'm going. Like, that's what I'm doing. Well, the police saw fit that that wasn't going to happen and arrested me at my mom's house hiding in her closet. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Welcome, listeners. I'm so excited. I have Aaron Lane here today. Aaron is a dad, a radio host, a podcast host, and a uh, man of long term recovery. Man of long term recovery. I, was, right. I wanted you to say it because it was so um, eloquent, and I couldn't remember exactly what you told me ahead of time how to phrase that. So that was. Perfect. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really stoked. This is a lot of fun for me because um, usually, as we were talking about before, I'm on the other end, yeah. and now I get to be on the receiving. So we'll see how I. Do. So you'll have to actually give me some feedback afterwards, okay. and you can critique me. That's fine. I don't know if I'm the best for critiquing anything, but I got you, boo. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Perfect. All right. So, Aaron, give our listeners a little bit of background. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Tell us your story. So I was born in Quantico, Virginia. I don't remember because I was a baby, uh, but I was pretty much raised here in Cincinnati. I have two brothers, uh, so all boys in a household. Um, grew up, you, you know, with them. With you know, my dad' parents were divorced. Back between houses, uh, did well in school. What's your I mean, um, what order? Order. So I'm the middle you, child. So in the middle. So yeah. am I. Is that right? Yeah. People pleaser. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. I still do it. That's why I'm in, I mean. That's it's, why you're it's, in radio. Right. I have to. I have to entertain. I have to be center of attention. Yeah. It's, and I have a, I have three girls, so you can only imagine the dynamic there. My middle daughter, Maggie, is the same way. Yeah. But there's a connection and a special thing there, so. So, listeners, Aaron has a t-shirt on. Do you want to tell us about the t-shirt that you have on? Because I feel like it's going to tell a little bit more story about you. This is Ice Cube. Mm-hmm. On my shirt, leaning against a 1964 Impala Lowrider, mm-hmm. and the and it's black. I wear a lot of black, uh, but I think the idea is today was a good day. Why? Well, I mean, to every day that you wake up and get another opportunity to uh, experience things is a good day. Do you love Ice Cube? I do. Yeah, I love. I'm a big fan of 90s hip hop. So awesome. Maybe that's the maybe that's the, what we're supposed to. That maybe that's yeah. what the listeners are supposed to know a little bit about you. Yeah, tell them, look up my uh, white guy rapped videos. Wait, wait. Yeah, like radio guy raps. I do. Uh, yeah, I've done a couple of them. 
That's hard to do, isn't it? Yeah, and a radio voice, like I lay it on extra thick. So they'll have to look it up. Yeah, I don't want to take up too much time in this to to bust that down. But it's it's, uh, entertaining, to say the least. Okay, Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Now I really want to see it. Um, Okay, so grow up, middle child. Two brothers. Two brothers, yeah. uh, you know, blood brothers. Then my parents got divorced, remarried, uh, had three stepbrothers. So there's all boys. And uh, we you know, really had a neat experience growing up. And, uh, you know, my perspective on it's different now. Like when I first started my whole thing here with the podcast and my recovery, I used to really analyze that part because I think, you know, what is the trauma as a kid? And yeah. I realized that my life was fine until it wasn't. So. Uh, getting back to that, though, you know, just grew up like a lot of normal people do, you know, experimentation, parties, friends, uh, graduated from a Baptist high school, which was insane. Uh, but I did. Wait, in Cincinnati? Yeah, I, I went to Wanted Hills and then I went, uh, I didn't show up to school a lot. So they sent me to Central Baptist as punishment. It was oh, terrible. Oh. It was the worst. Oh, my God. Yeah. From like a graduating, you know, there was like 2,000 people at, at Wanted Hills to like 12. Whoa. Yeah. Talk about culture shock. So did your um, like alcohol or, or whatever substance abuse take an uptick then or So no? yeah, I think there was a, a experimentation. Uh, I think like a lot, I think it's almost like coming of age, right? Like a lot of people say, you know, I started drinking in high school. I would go to parties and that's really what we did. Or we smoked cigarettes. That was a big thing. And, uh, you know, tried to hide them from our parents. Sure. But it wasn't until I graduated that I really thought, oh, I'm, I'm an adult. And I say that in air quotes. And yeah. let me try some things and experiment more and found that I liked weed. And and that was a great, you know, I liked alcohol. So I would go and hang out with my buddies. and and But there was no issue until there was. And that mm-hmm. was about the age of 25. 25. Yeah. Okay. All right. You want to take us there? Sure. We can jump right into that. I think the idea, I was married at the time. Uh, I had three children, three girls, like I was talking about before, and had a physician prescribe me pain medication, uh, which was not unheard of, especially in this country during the 2000s. Um, And it took off into something that was well beyond my control. So, What did he prescribe? uh, He prescribed the medicine for? Uh, for migraines, I also had a herniated uh, lower uh, disc in my lower back from being a bar back years ago, and yeah, you know, um, it's a prior injury. Okay, can so, I ask a couple questions? About absolutely, that? because let's do it. because I mean, you know, I have experience with the alcoholism, but not the drug piece of it. Right. So at, at the time, like when you're being prescribed that medicine, do you know you're addicted, and when do you know that you are, and how long does it take? Well, I think in my own life, I didn't know until uh, well after it was too late, right? Yeah. And it seems like silly. How long like, was that? So, I, I mean, I look at that first year. At 25, it was prescribed. I'd say uh, by the time I was 28, and maybe you know, 27 to 28, I yeah. started to realize like there's a huge problem. And the here. doctor was still prescribing. The it. doctor was until uh, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, for the first couple of years, because it started off with Viking, and then it went to Percocet, and then it went to you know much more, and and it was a combination of that and Adderall because of the ADD, and then, I mean, it was right. It got out of hand. It's like a pharmaceutical speedball. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, it's bad when I really yeah. look at it, and some of that's blurry too. You know, I mean, here I had a um, 
high intensity job, at least in my opinion, in the insurance industry, underwriter for international risks and was there a lot and very important things. And I needed to, one, I had this existing pain issue. These pills made me feel better, but then I was cloudy as a result of them and kind of all over the place. So the Adderall was helping to balance that. So, but it grew and it grew and it grew until I was running out early. And then I can, I remember even telling my wife at the time, like, you need to hide these from me. Really? But I left work just to go find them. Like, that's how... That's what a stranglehold it had on you. Yeah, and that was early. That was well before, like, the needles or, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty... When I dive into that, like, it's it's hard for me to believe today with the life that I have. I'm grateful for these experiences. Yeah. But it's just baffling. Because you would meet me, you look at me now, you're like... What? Yeah. You could never see that. Right. Like yeah. the Father, like, three kids. Father, three kids doing what I do. And yeah. Yet, yeah, I was a full-blown heroin addict, so... Okay, let's get there. Okay. So, I mean, that'll take us a little bit of time. But, so you're married. Yeah. With three girls. With three girls. It starts to get worse. Really bad. Really bad. And what happens first? Like, do you lose your job? Do you? So, I think what happens, uh, well, there's a a large sequence of events that happen when when you become addicted to something. Yeah. I I think it's almost like the stages of grief, right? It's like denial. Like, it's not really, it's not as bad as it is. And, you know, trying to hide it and... uh, you know, I think it started to get bad, and I remember this vividly. I have a really interesting memory about how things, I don't know if it's circumstantial or my dad came to visit me. I was working late. Yeah. And just a couple of days prior to that, I was at my brother's house. We had a family get together. Well, I had taken medication from my brother's house uh, out of a pill bottle, out of their medicine cabinet, and I didn't screw the top on all the way, Right. I didn't think anything of it. It's just a couple Percocets. I've taken a Percocet with my brother before. Or, I mean, I didn't see the, I, I couldn't right. connect the issue. Uh, but my brother's household was in chaos or like they thought maybe their kids got into him or like, cause they have no oh. idea. No, there was no, there was no sign. I didn't have any, uh, that, that connection, sy- right? Symptoms. Nothing. I mean, maybe they had a, an idea or a question like Karen's a little different. He's a little bit more, you know, on edge, but nothing of that stature. Uh, however, when he asked me, actually, he said, hey, you can't do that. I was like, it's not a big deal. And his wife called me. And then I remember arguing with her, like, just let it be. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. It's already over with. That trying to just push it, on, right. sweep it on the rug. Well, that wasn't good enough. So he told my dad and he told my mom and he told my wife and he told my brother, other brothers. So now yeah. everybody, now I'm under the radar here. Right. And everybody's reaching out to me. I'm trying to lie to my wife and say, no, like it didn't happen like that. You know, I ha- you know, I get them prescribed. I just, I was having a bad, it was something like having a bad headache. And then my dad just said, hey, so, you know, called me up and said, son, uh, I need to meet you. What are you doing? Let's just grab some dinner. So he met me at Sushi Ray's at the time, which is across the street from oh, where yeah. I used to work. Yeah. And uh, we get there and he's talking about Rush Limbaugh and Rush Limbaugh's things. You know, he was addicted to Oxycontin for a long time. You know, this was really big in the news. And my dad said, you know, I don't know what's going on, but uh, I love you either way. But you need to get this figured out. Like now, you don't want, this is nothing but bad. And uh, yeah, it didn't get any better. No. (laughs) Because I basically shrugged him off. I really did. And I just didn't assume that that it, it was as bad, or I just wanted them to kind of leave me alone about it. Right, which I think is pretty typical with yeah, any absolutely. addiction. I just want somebody to leave me alone. Just hide it. Just protect it. Yeah. Because how yeah. embarrassing. I mean, here, you, you know, at that time, I think you can intellectualize it, right? You can say, this is not right. Me taking, you know, when I really break it down, stealing medication from my brother is wrong. 
Right. Not understanding that I'm already on autopilot. I'm already, this is already something that was, you know, 10 steps higher than I thought. So can you then share with us what were some of the miracles to recovery? Miracles to recovery. I'm sure that you have some. Yeah. So I look at it two different ways. I mean, uh, one of the things that sticks out to me right now is initially my mom, I was in treatment, court order treatment, and I used on the unit. And like at the time, it was a lockdown facility. Uh, they bought, brought Suboxone in. I was like, they can't test for it. Right. And well, they obviously could because everybody's getting in trouble. And my mom said to me, are you willing to risk everything for that one thing? You know, you think about it. You can have drugs or you can have the house, the car. You can have all this, right? So you look at, throw your hands up. Or, I mean, you can have that one thing, but it gets you all this, like arrest, jail time. You know, the list goes on. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason that sticks in my head is because... Like the, you said, like the miracles of recovery or the this thought process thing. Yeah. So I think at first, the, the you know, I take that idea, something my mom said to me, and getting to a point now where the idea of using is not even in the picture, right? Yeah. At one time in my life, that was a considered option. If someone offered me something, uh, if I was having a bad day, I would think about it. I would almost... You know, focus on that, like, oh, I need to go get a drink or, you know, I wish this would end, whatever that is. Um, but naturally through time and, and working a program of recovery, the desire is not even there. And so it's not even a thought. So now I start thinking about all these other things. I start thinking about my family, the podcast, my career, my children, the house. And I don't think about that one thing. Yeah. So when I've realized, like, there's this n- neat dichotomy that says no, none of that is, you know. Okay, but that takes significant work. <laughs> yeah. But for some people, I think it can be pretty fast, but for others, it oh, isn't. Oh, it didn't take, so, yeah. This didn't happen overnight. Yeah. I'm just saying, I think, you know, for me to try and wrap all these things up in a, in a short time frame yeah. and give you a concise, like, explanation. Like, what was the tipping point when you were like, okay, I really, this is serious. I'm going to make a change. I've had a lot of those. Uh, the most significant was being and and I've talked about I talk about this in, in my show and my in leads and um in December of 2016 I was set out to get high. Okay. On December seventh. I was like, I'm going, like that's what I'm doing. Well the police saw fit that that wasn't gonna happen and arrested me at my mom's house hiding in her closet. And I had racked up a lot of charges that year. So I thought, I'm screwed. I'm going to jail for the rest of my life. Right. I mean all of that. My I don't have a job, my relationship's falling apart. And I went in front of a judge, Judge Burke, who's awesome. She does Hamilton County's ADAPT program and drug court. And she said, Mr. Lane, I know you don't have any hope, but I have hope for you. Do you want to do treatment again? I'm thinking, oh, I don't even deserve this. Like, this is one of these turning point moments. It's like, I can't keep pushing the envelope. Like, I've been out of chances well beyond this point, and I'm not willing to let it happen again, right? So I go to treatment, and it's over Christmas Naturally, I seem to always want to go to treatment around Christmas. And, you know, it's also my anniversary is on New Year's Eve and I'm here in treatment. Were you still married then? I was. Right. And we had repaired. You know, that's what's interesting about that is every time the catalyst for our issues, I always felt were just the drugs. Like if I could just get clean, everything else will work out. People tell you that in treatment. They just, that's not true, by the way. Because there might be a dynamic of your relationship that is toxic that you need to just cut ties. Yes. Um, I can only own my part, but still, all Got I can it. say is this, since I've been divorced, okay, I've been able to stay clean and sober, just throwing that out there. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, but it is true. 
Uh, no, why was it? Why was in that treatment center? I had a spiritual experience. And that spiritual experience went like this: uh, forty-five days into my recovery, or my my sobriety, just being clean from substances, well into 2017. I think it was February, first Monday or second Monday. I get a phone call in the office about 7 a.m., which is unusual because it's a lockdown treatment center. And they say, Aaron, you have a phone call. I was like, that's bizarre. So I go in there and I pick it up and it's my wife. She's yeah. still, we're still technically married. She says, Aaron, um, I'm bringing divorce papers down today. Like a blow to my heart because I'm thinking, oh, we, we, I thought we maybe will fix this. Right. And she said, and uh, I don't know if you heard about Jimmy, but uh, I was like, no, I didn't. She's like, well, he killed himself. Jimmy's my brother. Oh, my God. So, yeah. Um. It's always so difficult to tell because I remember it very vividly. Very, you know, like in the morning, um, you know, I just talked about those five, you know, those all those things for that one thing. At that point in time, I was in such despair and and uh, anguish that I wanted to use, yeah, but I couldn't leave. So I had to sit with this feeling all day long of wanting to use, of just hating life, of feeling less than and, and not being able to be there for family or my children or my mom or my brother. Like, what if I was home? What if I didn't have all these issues? What if this? What if that? You know, days turn into nights, you know what I mean? Like, which happens. And it's like two, three o'clock in the morning. And I'm still with this same thought process. Like, I'm going to figure out a way I can get out of here. Let me figure out, you know, like yeah. whatever I can do. I'm being combative. I'm being angry. I'm, you know, just a total personality change. All I can think, I'm just consumed with my disease of addiction yeah, and self-pity. So I'm in, I go in the bathroom and I'm in the mirror and I'm looking at myself and I'm crying and I'm, I'm saying, Aaron, you're worthless. You're a piece of shit. You're the worst guy ever. You know, should in a lot of ways just give in and, and, and you know, just give in. And a security guard comes in and he sees me crying and he's like, Aaron, go to bed. I'm like, no, you go to bed. I'm not going to bed. It's not worth it. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm a terrible dad. I'm worthless. He said, yeah. just go to bed. So I like, fine, I stomp off, <laughs> and I get in my bed, and I lay down, and I put on some headphones. Yeah. And the moment I put them on, a song starts to play, right? And starts off by saying, mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall, telling those lies, pointing out your flaws, that's not who you are. And I remember, like, thinking, like, I was just in the mirror, like, what the <laughs> heck is happening? This continuous song goes, it's like, uh, it's late at night, and you're wide awake, too much to take, but don't you forget that through your pain, you can be brave. And I see you dressed in white. I'm like, I'm wearing a white T-shirt. It's the middle of the night. He says, I see you every night. I see your rose in bloom. Just a sight of you. You are oh so priceless. And there's this direct shift from what I was feeling and what I was saying and telling myself I was worthless yeah. to now all of a sudden, through a song, mind you, that I was priceless. And this is a very shortened, condensed explanation, yeah. Yeah. but nonetheless... It's a very personal thing that happened, very blinding light moment, which, you know, yes. a spiritual experience. So just call it for it is. I heard God through a song yeah. that night or that morning, however you want to look at it, sure. very early in the morning, and everything changed in the blink of an eye. Everything what? that had happened up to that point, everything, all the bad, all the good, all everything, all the the tries at getting sober, all the attempt, everything, my kids, my, you know, everything. Because I think, it, I think it's really important um, that some people may know this and some don't that you know relapse happens a lot yeah. a lot but that relapse is sometimes a part of people's recovery and um but i love that i love that spiritual experience that's that's big 
It, and not only is it like, and the weird thing is because I've ta- talked about it a lot, right? And yeah. I know the feeling. I know the dis- deep connection and, and I don't have to prove it to anybody. No. I know that. That's a beautiful thing. It's like, yeah. I know what happened to me and that's good enough. Yeah. But as a result. As a, look what happened as a result. That's what That's I'm a saying. miracle. So it's really two miracles. Yeah. Right? It's a, hand, it's a whole bunch of them, really. I look at like spiritual yeah. experiences two ways, right? It can be blinding light like that. Or it can be like God's got a dimmer switch. Right. Yeah. And he's like, here you go. Just a little bit right there. A little epiphany for you. Yeah. You might not do anything with it. But then in that blinding light moment is when you look at all those times he turned the switch up a bit. And you're like, oh, I saw you here, there, there. Oh, my gosh. You have been here the whole time. So can I, I don't know why I feel compelled to tell this story. But I'm going to tell you this story. So, um, So my dad, before my parents got married, he got sober. Okay. And my mom was living in Mexico City. She had she was engaged to a Mexican and he broke it off with her and she was devastated. Like it was announced in the New York Times that they were getting married. Oh, wow. Like it was a bit it was she was the love of her life. So she goes and talks to these nuns and she says to the nuns, "I'm literally devastated. I thought I was going to marry this man and be with him for the rest of my life." And they said to her, um, well, first they were like, do you want to be a nun? And she's like, no. <laughs> yeah. And then, and by the way, this is in the 60s. Yeah, and I was so, going to say, I mean, this is the 60s. I've so. seen nuns in Mexico, but it was at this totally different story. <laughs> Tijuana, so just throwing said, that out there. So she says <laughs> to these nuns, no, I don't want to do that. I, I really want to get married someday. And so they said, okay, tonight we want you to go home and we want you to pray for your husband. And she's like, okay. So she goes home that night. She prays for her husband to be. She moves back to Cincinnati. She goes to Xavier University for a master's in education, and she meets my dad and starts dating him. They get married, and a couple years later, my dad shared with her—maybe it wasn't a couple years, but whatever. Right. He shared with her his sobriety story, and it was one night he—I think he was on, like, speed and alcohol and was overdosed, basically. And— prayed to God for the first time in many, many years. And he said, God, if you save me tonight, tomorrow, I will go and I'll go to a 12-step program and get sober. So it was my dad's sobriety date. They found out it was the same night that my mom had Yeah, see, that's not a coincidence. I don't think, like, it's too powerful. You know how much prayer has been surrounded like I'm sure, uh, like in my life, and I and I know that those prayers. This is this is a weird di- uh, conversation to get into, but I want to make. First of all, I don't believe in coincidence. I don't, especially in the spiritual variety. Yeah. I mean, last week I resigned from a job, and I was having a bad day, and my car- tire went flat, and this and that, and I was I, I showed up at a clubhouse, or a local clubhouse. The moment I walked up, you're like, "Hey, you want to do a lead tonight?" I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> you know what I mean? Just yeah. the the circle. People it, won't understand what clubhouse is, so that's just a place. For twelve for step program Correct. where you can go for meetings. Yeah, so okay. like any time, just I, I I make that a part of my uh, program of recovery just to show up at places that people get clean and sober. I think yeah. it's important just to get the air of it, just to see someone who might be struggling, you know, something. Yeah. Uh, even if I'm only there for ten minutes, I, you can make time in a day right. to just spend, just to say I'm going to stay grounded in this. Yeah. Uh, because my recovery is taking on a, a new life altogether. Um, it's in a lot of different program or, you know, my own thing and 12-step. Uh, I mean, you combine God and you combine it all together. So I loved what you said about that judge who said that I'm going to give you hope or I'm, I have, I have hope. hope for you, Mr. Lane. I yeah. have hope for you. So do you feel like, because you remember that vividly, yeah. do you feel like that's 
kind of your life's work now is doing that for others. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, and I've broken this down a couple of times, but I think it's important to discuss. So I didn't have any. And I know how people feel like when they get to the deepest areas of their addictions or alcohol. I I know the feeling. I went through it. I see it. And I realize everything, all the terrible things that I've done, right? And that my life is better today. I'm like, if if that's true, if that's possible in my own life, then it would have to be possible in somebody else's. Because mm-hmm. I am not that special. Do you know what I mean? I am not, I'm not the only one that deserves it. Heck, I don't even right. really deserve it. Right. But it was like the grace of God, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, what would I have wanted? What did I get on this journey? And it was compassion. And it was... You know, someone's still treating me like a human being and someone having the hope for me even when I didn't have it for myself. And that has been the embodiment. And not just in recovery. This is not what I do. Right. It's not just a recovery right. thing. I think people seem, they don't know that. And that's, I, maybe this is the opportunity to talk about it. It's, it is a just, let's learn to, the whole idea of tragedy to triumph, this thing you can turn no matter how bad it is around. And I know there's got to be areas where people don't believe that's necessarily true. But I think at least in our perspectives. I want to repeat that back. So Tragedy to Triumph. Tragedy to Triumph. Is the name of your podcast. Yes. I want to make sure that we say that so that everybody here. (laughs) (laughs) Just throw, I love throw, is it just happened? I'm so excited. Yeah, you should be excited. Yeah, I own it. Um, Sorry, I got distracted there because I just wanted to make sure everybody heard that. Trust me, it happens to me all the time. Okay. Tragedy to Triumph is um, this idea that embodies showing compassion for somebody else and that they can go through anything and turn it around. And I've started at the path of least resistance, things closest to me, which is recovery. Sure. Because of how ugly it is, right? How bad. I mean, look, anybody, everybody has been affected by this. Everybody. I don't know one person. And if, and I always ask someone, like, when I do these talks, Mike, if someone hasn't been affected, talk to me after the show. Because I'm, like, intrigued by that. That's the case. Yeah. Uh, Whether they're willing to to acknowledge it or not. Um, but I think um, I think addiction comes in so many forms. Yes, um, glad you I think, said that. Like I, I, I had another guest on the show, um, Kirk Platt. Okay, and he and I were talking about that specifically because I think, yes, I mean, alcoholism, drug addiction, but I think it's also being on your phone. I think yeah. it's and eating and sex and work and, and it's everything gambling. to not feel sometimes correct. And some of it is just glaringly worse than other things. Like, right, um, you know, someone overeats, they're going to get diabetes or, you or, know. Or somebody that doesn't eat. Right. Or because that's, that's they're trying, yeah. They want to look good. Or like people that are addicted. Oh, that, the scariest one right now is that Instagram addiction where people want to, like, they filter their, their photos or Photoshop them so yeah. much. They don't even know what they look like. Okay. That's a, that's a new one. But it's an extension of eating disorder. Yeah. They, yeah. They've, they're proving that. Um but the the core issue here is, um, and I think it ties back to your compassion, which is sitting with oneself even in the most, even in discomfort. Yeah. And not trying to fix it with food, with whatever. With something that's going to hurt you. you For know me I mean? right so now, it's, right. it's food because I've now moved from alcohol to food, which is super Dude. great. Yeah. Right. Mine's awesome. working out right now. My oh, girlfriend's God. like, get out of it. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Just, I hate you because I wish mine was working. Well, it's out. supposed to be like a net. And I keep telling people, right? I've been telling people, like, they're like, why are you back in the gym? I say, I want to feel, I want to look on, as good on the outside as I feel on the inside. Oh, my God. I love that. I know. I'm off. I'm full of those. I'm going to write a book just full of little Aaronisms. 
talking about the over the top confidence and and uh, no, I think it's important though. I think that there's yeah. only one me. You know, what I mean, not that it's. I, just as much as there's one you yes. and there'll be no one that ever looks at this world exactly the way that I do. And I think it's important because how do we have literature? How do we have something? How do you leave your mark on the world? What is it that you do? I mean, and, you know, and I love like how yours failing for, forward. I think it's a beautiful, grand way of, of putting it because without all of that stuff, we wouldn't have gotten here. Right. If, and that is something that needs to be embodied and shared and harnessed and spread. And I think it also combats all of the, you know, look at me culture and all of the ugly of just people dying all the time. People can beat this. So you brought it back to compassion. Yeah. And that's important. That's mission critical for you. Mm-hmm. How can one develop compassion for self and others? Well, I think I mean, it's I think it's a learnable skill. Um, but people have to have the willingness to say, maybe they don't know everything. What I've learned about people's, uh, opinions and beliefs, they're based off of their own experiences, ethics, family. I mean, think about all the reasons you think the way that you do. And, uh, you know, even take it as far as someone who, like, there's people that don't, I'm not going to get to the, uh, diseases and addiction or, 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 sorry, Addiction's not a disease or is it type thing. Right. I think it's that, you know, some people are aggravated. Uh, they don't want to hear stories about of recovery or addiction because some, maybe someone stole their stuff. Maybe their brother is is struggling. Maybe mm-hmm. it's those things. Maybe they have such, you, you know, maybe who they had knows? A parent maybe their parent, struggled. like, right. They're, you know, they grew up in a home and their father was abusive because he was a drunk. Like, these things are real, but everybody has traumas, right? Everybody has a situation in their life that we could show, we can directly relate to. And I think it's important to humanize that. I think it's also this this translation, like if, at least for, it's, I think it's especially easier for people in recovery because they feel the amount of grace that they get to transfer that to somebody else. So I, I think that, you know, I've always heard like anybody could use a 12-step program or anybody could use, you know, a program yeah. of recovery because it's a lifestyle and thinking about someone else besides thinking about myself. Because if, even by helping people, what's the most baffling thing and thing that I've learned is by literally just giving of yourself to somebody else, you do get in return. So you can call it karma. You can call it what, I mean, it doesn't matter what you call it, but it is so true in my own life. The more I give to others and say yes and say, I'm willing to help you, that my life moves forward. And that's the great people don't seem to, to understand it. I didn't know that. Even. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm just going to systematically help. No, I do this. I do. I you know, what does it take to be kind to somebody? What does it take? Does it take you any money? Did, what does it take to let someone in front of you on the road? I know it sounds, it's not just like, hey, raise the sunshine like a bumper sticker here. Like this is literally a life practice thing right. where you say, it's what is the, why is this so important to me? What am I not dealing with that I can't consider somebody else for a moment? And how can I get out of myself right, and focus by helping on someone else. That's yeah. how you get out of yourself. Yep. You know, the one thing that I've learned in all of the people that have been on my show, they have all these different programs of recovery and a, AA, church, celebrate recovery, I mean, smart recovery. I mean, the list goes on. The one thing they all have in common is that they give back. Yeah. And I'm like, well, there you go. That's it. That's how you- That's the common thread. Common thread across the board is that they give back. Well, I want to thank you for giving back to our listeners and to me. It's been an insanely amazing interview. So (laughs) thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. We kept the mics running, so listen more to Aaron's interview. Anything you want to go over that we haven't and we could Mm. add? 
No, I like the, we could just talk. We can, we can just record and then if you want to use it, use it. But I was just sitting there thinking to myself, you know, one of the, especially on the way here and how my life is today, right? In the series of events since I got, since that day. Yeah. Because that's what I was talking about earlier. Like since this moment where I saw that I had this like blinding. Well, and it's a really real, deeply personal thing. And I've talked about it so much that I, it it takes me a while to really set it up and and You know what I didn't ask you about? What happened to your brother? Oh, he was, uh, he uh, hung himself. He was paranoid schizophrenic. My stepbrother, Jimmy. And. um, Stepbrother? Is that what you said? But still, I mean. You love, you love, he was your family. We grew up. This is my brother since I was a little boy. Um, you know, I, there's a lot of things because all my stories are out there. Like my whole lead, my think break is, is out there. Um, but the wild thing is as a result of that spiritual experience on radio and because people have always said, you have this voice, you have this way of commanding a room. People just listen to you. I was like, I'm gonna get in radio. And I told my children, I told my mom, I made a commitment to myself. You know what I mean? I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know if it's going to work out, but I'm going to make sure I give it my all. Like yeah. I'm going to apply the same aspect of my recovery to doing that. Yeah. So every single day, and I woke up and I believed it. You know, I'm going to look at myself in the mirror and say, Aaron, you're priceless. You're going to get on the radio. It's going to happen. Just own it now. You're going to do big things. That's my whole uh, catchphrase. Yeah. And it can't, and systematically, it's like. I went for an interview, didn't get the job. I was like, oh, that sucks, right? And I was so, you know, I thought like positive things going to happen. Right. And then I had to complete some stuff for probation. All this stuff's behind me. I remember praying to God. I was like, all right, whatever, what's next, right? And two days later, the school for broadcasting yeah. calls me and says, hey, would you want to do a walkthrough? We'll see if we know you want to do this. I was like, yeah. So I show up and... We find out it's only cost me like $400 to go. I was like, <laughs> of course. It's like, right. Why wouldn't I? And uh, they said, well, you start Monday, which is like two days after I just said, you know, my one thing's done and I'm praying to God. It's like, what's next? I'm like, well, there's my son. This is what's next. So I was like, it'll open up doors, right? Two weeks after being there, two weeks, they have, um, they make an announcement that Cumulus, the same company that I had just interviewed for, yes. is looking for interns. So it's like, well, I have to do that. So as they're talking, I'm sending my resume because I already have a resume. I already had a great work experience. I just was on drugs for a while. <laughs> and uh, it's true. So I uh, I sent that in there. I got Hold an on, interview. Can I just repeat that back? I had a wonderful work experience. I was just on drugs for a while. That's true. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, keep going. Well, I mean, when we really break it down. It's I like know, but you the just one said it that... so nonchalantly. You're like, you know, just this one small, tiny yeah, just, just a caveat. Well, just, because without it, then look, look at your, I mean, in my own life, you look at everything I've done. I sold myself short, right? I yeah. look at it and I say, I've done amazing things. And the one thing that has prevented me from getting even further is was the drug. So yeah. yes, I, that that's the reason that I haven't built upon this awesome resume that I have. Yeah, yeah. Now I have, though. Now, now I've removed that from it. It's like, all right, now back on the same path that, um, but I got hired like the, the that day from Cumulus, the oh same God. company I just interviewed for, uh, you know, a couple of weeks prior that said, we, you won't, you can't work here. It's crazy. And then I interned for him for eight months as a grown man with kids, with child support, having an apartment, working third shift. I mean, all those things. So people need to hear that because yeah. um, I was just meeting with somebody this morning who's like 49 He's turning 50 soon. He's like, I think I need to reinvent myself. And I'm like- You can. Of course you can. Yeah. Wh- why not? I think when people are, are uh, bound by fear, 
And I get yeah. that because I've been bound by it before. But I thought, I have a new lease on life, right? You know what he called it? What? I love this phrase. He said, I have head trash <laughs> around certain things. And we kind of talked through what that head, head trash, trash was. I was like, I love that. Yeah, I like that too. Right? He's like, and I know I need to look at a couple of those pieces. Yeah. A couple and of those really, pieces why am, trash. Holding, why am I holding on to them? Right? Why right? am I holding on to this trash? Yeah. Like, it's trash. Get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that too. Hmm. I know. Sometimes so, I say I'm just addressed up trash can. <laughs> Wait, I, what does that mean? I mean, it's kind of like we're all, I mean, no, I'm just being silly. <laughs> I heard okay. it in a meeting once. So, okay, so these things happen. Yeah, you, I mean, and just as direct result of recovery and, and showing up and being honest, like all the things that you have, you learn in this uh, from other people, like the roadmap has already been written, right? Like, hey, show up. Uh, don't up. use, right. Just yeah. like these are things like the same story you hear across the board, like every success story Every single one I've ever heard is rooted in some type of pain and ugliness and like living in my car or this or that, or my wife left me. I mean, it's always rooted in that or my husband or, you know what I mean? Sure, so sure. it goes both, both ways, men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, but to embrace like, all right, I'm just going to show up. I'm going to do what's right in front of me. And I'm going to keep, com- stay committed to that, but just put my head down, just do it. And you keep doing that. And it like. You know, going to work, going to school, taking care of the kids, paying child. So, I mean, like all the things, like I just have to do it. I don't care what, if if it happens, great. If it doesn't, at least I know I'm doing something to like better myself right now. And I have no, I have nothing left. I don't have, I can't do the job I used to in insurance because I have felonies. So right. I have to do something. And uh, yeah. Like I the, think it almost gives, um, it gives you a little bit of freedom because you're like, that's the true. only way I'm going to go is up at this point. So, and even if I don't, even if this is it, it's I'm way happy. better than the alternative. Yes. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, it's like uh, the what is show limitless or whatever. Like we only tap into so much of our potential. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can call motivation, you know, like, look, Tony Robbins made a great killing out of motivational speeches. Right? I'm sorry, people, you can make fun of me, but I think Tony Robbins well, is Well, that's amazing. what I was going to get at. I was going to get at it. I do. Uh, same thing, Gary V. Um, yeah. You know, these guys uh, embody that ideal, right? Like, just shut up and go do it. Like, what is, uh, you know, they they look at it and they've figured out this, this program of action because that's really what it is. Yeah. They can have all these great quotes, these isms. Like, even I say I have mine too, but it's just literally sh- showing up and doing your best. Just go do it. Like, you, like, life is short. We all know that. All the same things, these trite sayings that we've heard over and over again just for today. You're like, well, literally all you have is today. Yeah. Right? You start really thinking about these things. Like, yeah. oh, someone else came up with that. And it's true, so I might as well apply it. Um, what do I want to be? I want to be a good dad. How do you how do you become a good dad? Well, you show up and you spend time with your kids. Like this is not complicated. It's not rocket science, right? <laughs> but that also goes back to um, not being focused on yourself, but giving to others, right? Yeah. And in that process too, and and you know to to be subservient in the sense of like an internship, right? To be well overqualified in a lot of ways, like for what I was doing. Yeah. However, to one, have made a commitment to myself to do whatever it takes to make this happen. That I was literally, you know, there's a subservience in that. And like, yeah. okay, fine, I'll, I'll show up at the radio station, wherever you need me to be at four o'clock in the morning tomorrow, or you want me to file paperwork when I could it. literally, you know, there's so much, I'm like untapped, untapped, you know, potential there, but you just do it. So what would be your final maybe words or advice to listeners around the 
you know, untapped or limitless peace? Untapped or limitless peace. Um, I believe that everybody has value. Mm -hmm. I believe in a sense that we're all priceless. I think what tends, what, what will happen is when you, even if you don't believe it, you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, you're priceless or I love you or something. I mean, it's just start there, even if you don't believe it. And what tends to happen is you will start to believe it. And then uh, for whatever reason, once you recognize that you have value, some of these things tend to fall off. So I think with that is that you just tap into the potential. It's like self-love. I know it sounds so weird, but it's true. No, it doesn't. I tell myself, you know, I have a, a, a guy I mentor or sponsor. Yeah. And we started very simply. I said, just look at yourself in the mirror and tell yourself that you're priceless. Mm -hmm. And then we'll keep talking because that you have value. If I can do what I did and I have done a lot of terrible stuff, then you can do it too. So you may know that our Patreon page is live, but what you might not know is that we recently added a new perk, early access to every Failing Forward episode. As a reminder, Patreon is a donation platform, and by becoming a donor, you help us grow and market the show. Plus, you get bonus content like our monthly newsletter and the Face Your Fears Toolkit. And now, with a pledge of $2 or more, you can stream new episodes before anyone else can. So donate today by visiting failforwardpod.com. A big thank you to our newest patron, Bill W., I want to thank our sponsor, Corporate Consciousness, and everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Fail Forward Pod.